Good morning. How we doing? Good. Merry Christmas. Feels like we need like a call and response. Like an Easter we have. He is risen. He's risen indeed. We need like Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas indeed. That's fine. Uh, if you're joining us online, we're excited that you're joining us. I'm excited to see you all here rounding out your Christmas celebration with us at North Point. Uh, throughout the month of December, we've been working through this idea of a Christmas uncluttered, this concept of removing in order to make space for the things that really matter. Uh, everyone knows that during the holidays, calendars tend to fill up, bank accounts run low, and so we wanted to remind ourselves as a church that we don't need to fill our lives to that breaking point. And now we're here, it's December 26, Christmas has technically come and gone, and it can kind of feel like we're in the wake of a tornado. Anyone feel exhausted after this week? Some of us, uh, some of you have been able to say goodbye to house guests and been able to take stock of the damage that's been done to your home, to your wallet, to your sanity. Some of you are wishing you could say goodbye to house guests so that you could begin that process. <laughs> Some of us are really excited to have house guests still uh, because we know that once we say goodbye and we start that process of putting the holidays behind us, that we go back to normal. Uh, and whatever that means for you, it could be back to your job, back to school, back to bills, back to debt, back to responsibilities. And that can feel really draining. I mean, fill in the blank for whatever comes next for you as we, as we enter into January. Uh, it could be debt that's only gotten bigger throughout the month of December. It could be a health diagnosis that you're still waiting for an answer on. It could be going back to work to a job that you don't enjoy, to a boss that doesn't enjoy you and you don't enjoy them. Uh, it could be going back to school. If you're a student, you can go back to college, high school, and, and, and all you see as you look out is just this crushing weight of homework and credits and student debt and extracurriculars and expectations. Maybe you're the parent on the flip side of that coin, and you're trying to get your kids through school, and the last year has been anything but normal for you in that process. Maybe this was your first Christmas alone um, due to a loss, due to a tragedy, and that can be really hard to suffer through. And we're not a culture that really does well with grief. We don't really know how to handle that. And so you feel like you've just been alone in that process. Maybe, uh, if we're getting a little real, maybe you know that once you go back to normal, you go back home to a home that's filled with anger and pain and shame. You take off your fake smile. And maybe going back to normal means going back to wrestling with the same pattern of sin that you've been dealing with for years. And I know that's a depressing way to start off a, a, Chris, a Christmas message, but I want to be real. That's kind of where a lot of us are at. That's at least where I'm at. I'm exhausted, fatigued. And so how in the world are we supposed to find rest and, and relief in a world that seems like its only intent and desire is to add to our burden and to our pain. And that is the beauty of the Christmas message, that it's simply an, an early chapter in God's plan to redeem us. And so I, I, you know, I love Christmas. I'm, I'm a sucker for all things Christmas. Christmas music, Christmas movies, Christmas snacks, Christmas food, Christmas desserts, I love it all. But we can get so wrapped up in those Christmas things that we lose sight of why we celebrate Christmas and what happens as a result of Christmas. And so as we work through that, I look at the normal of my life that's filled with burden and anxiety and stress and expectations and pressure, 
and I look at the story of Jesus being born, and I begin to ask, so what? Really, Jesus is born, so what? Jesus being born doesn't save me, doesn't fix my life, doesn't remove stress, anxiety. We certainly lose sight of the amazing miracle it is that Jesus was born, that God was born, like, that doesn't make sense, and we lose sight of that. But I'm still a sinner, I still have consequences, I still have pain and trauma and hurt. And so I wanna look at a story today that is after the Christmas story. This takes place uh, early in Jesus' ministry, and I think it wonderfully answers this question of so what. So if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in Matthew 11, or if you have the North Point app, you can follow along. And we're gonna work through this phrase, this famous phrase from Jesus that says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, Burden is, uh, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is a very famous phrase from Jesus. Um, in fact, it's so famous and probably familiar that we lose sight of the context that it's placed within. And if there's a verse that I think wins an award for being the verse that's most often misinterpreted or misapplied, it would be this verse. You see, we can look at these words and just taking them at face value, we can begin to think that if I'm a follower of Jesus, that means my life will be easy, and pain-free, and if my life is not pain-free and easy, then I'm not a follower of Jesus. And that is an idea we wanna steer clear of completely, because that's not what Jesus is saying. And so we wanna back up just a little and just get some context. I'm a huge fan of context. Context helps us avoid bringing our own desires, our own ideas, our own interpretations to the Bible. And so that's what we wanna do today. So we're gonna back up. This, this passage uh, that Jesus says where his yoke is easy, his burden is light, he gives rest, that comes at the end of Matthew chapter 11. And if you're reading through the Bible or if you're reading, reading really anything, like a, a famous speech and there's a, there's a phrase that really sticks out and it comes at the end, it's probably important to back up a little so that you understand what led to those words being said. So we're gonna do that. We're gonna back up just a little in Matthew 11 we're gonna jump in at verse 20 and see where we find Jesus. Verse 20. Then he, he being Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Horazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. All right, Merry Christmas, judgment, destruction, Happy New Year, that's the message. Not a great message, but this is that context that's really important. This comes before Jesus promises rest. So what is Jesus saying here? So in these verses, we're given the locations of where Jesus is ministering, uh, namely three cities. We have Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And yes, to properly pronounce Chorazin, you need that, uh, I think I'm getting a flu kind of phlegm buildup in your throat to say Chorazin. <laughs> 
And then Jesus mentions three other cities. We have Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. And these are three cities that were known for their adamant opposition to God and their love for their sin. I don't know if they, if they still call it this, but growing up, we called Las Vegas Sin City. They still call it that? Is that weird to call it that? So Sin City, that's what Vegas is known for, a place where you can indulge in every pleasure that you desire. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, the whole nine yards. But Vegas has nothing on Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. These are like super sin cities in that culture. That's what they were known for. And so when Jesus begins to paint this picture of the cities that he's ministering in, and these three wicked, sinful cities, we can begin to think that these cities where Jesus is ministering are these horrible, pagan, godless cities. But that's not the case. All of those cities are actually located in Israel, along the Sea of Galilee. These are God-worshiping cities that Jesus pronounces judgment on. And we have this really cool insight from Matthew in verse 20 where he says that these cities are where Jesus performed most of his miracles, most of his mighty works. So up to this point, Jesus has focused most of his efforts in these God-worshiping cities. And despite all of that, despite healings, miracles, messages, sermons, ministry, living life with Jesus, they reject him. And so it's important to see this from the text. This is our first lesson that we get from context, that you can meet the real Jesus and reject him. These cities lived life with Jesus. They saw his miracles, heard his sermons, and they rejected him. You know, I can remember in my own life having a conversation with a dear friend that I wanted so badly to know the Lord. And we were having conversations, and I remember I would, verses would just pop up, and I would share, like, oh, you need to read this verse in Romans. It talks about your sin and your need for a Savior. Nothing. No response. Oh, you should, uh, you should consider this theological truth that God is good and kind and faithful. Nothing. No response. Oh, you should hear this part of my story of, of how Jesus is working in my life and how he brought me closer to him. Nothing. No response. And I began to get so discouraged, thinking, like, what am I doing wrong? I just want this person to know Jesus, and they're rejecting him. And so we tend to have this thought that if we share the right Bible verse or the right theological truth or the right part of our testimony, that people will just automatically have a breakthrough and follow Jesus. But in scripture, what we see is that there are people, many people, in fact, that are so buried under the burden of their sin and of this life that they refuse to even acknowledge Jesus. But why do people reject Jesus? And, and why specifically did these Israelite cities refuse to acknowledge Jesus as their savior? Let's ask Jesus. Let's continue in verse 25, and let's see what Jesus explains for this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Father, uh, handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay, so Jesus says that people don't repent of their sin because God has hidden it from them. Now, this is worth sitting with and unpacking because we can begin to formulate questions and go down a trail that I don't think Jesus is leading us down. 
So it's important to remember that when we have questions about scripture, they're probably answered in scripture. <laughs> so when it comes to God hiding and revealing things, Jesus tells us what that looks like. He says the truth, the truth of him, his identity, who he is, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, that truth is hidden from the wise and it's revealed to children. Now this isn't meant to be taken literally, as in everyone in the area that was under the age of 18 knew exactly who Jesus was, but as soon as you turned 18, you're like, what, who, Jesus, I don't know. It's meant to be taken, Jesus is talking about pride and humility. You see, these cities are Jewish, and are therefore under the Jewish law. And so when they're under the Jewish law, it's filled with Jewish scholars, and Israelite lawyers, and it's also filled with prideful people who live under the law. And it's at this point that we need to talk about the law. Capital L. L. Capital L law. <laughs> He's got it. <laughs> so God gave the law to the Jewish people. It's given by God. It starts with the Ten Commandments. Uh, don't worship any other gods. Don't uh, worship idols. Don't murder, don't steal, so on and so forth. And it goes on and on throughout the Old Testament. So at the end, we have about 600 laws given by God. There's about 250 positive do this type of law and 350 negative don't do this type of law. And it's the strict adherence to the letter of the law that caused a lot of problems for God's people. So first off, we need to understand the law is a good thing. God gave, the, God gave his people the law, not because the law was bad, but because they were bad. The Apostle Paul has a great breakdown of the purpose of the law in Romans, specifically Romans 5, 6, and 7. I don't have time to go through three chapters of Romans. We would be here till next week. I don't want to do that to you, so you can write that down, read it later. It's a great explanation. But if I'm going to summarize what Paul gives for the purpose of the law, it's this. The law exists to help you see sin in your life. So now that I have this law, I have this standard that God gave, I know I, and I can see, oh, this is where I'm being prideful and I'm cheating and stealing and I have outbursts of anger and I have all these areas of my life where I see that I fall short. But the law doesn't save me. But in these cities, they thought that that was the end goal, that God's design and end goal for their life was to live forever under the law. So you wake up every morning and you have 600 laws that you are expected to know, you've memorized them, and you live them out in perfection. And if you don't, there's a whole city of people that's waiting to hold you accountable. That's actually one of the laws. Did you know that? that one of the laws in Jewish culture was that we would hold a wrongdoer accountable, which is a good thing in principle. Like, if you observe someone committing a crime, this law would compel you to see to it that that person's held accountable. That's a good thing. But in these cities, you had religious leaders that kind of amped up the application of the law. And so it wasn't just observing crime, it was observing like, hey, this person's not really resting like I want them to on the Sabbath. And so by this law, you were bound by the law to hold them accountable. Whether they're a family member, friend, total stranger, doesn't matter. If you observe someone falling short, you hold them accountable. And if you don't hold them accountable, they can turn around and hold you accountable for the law that they fell short of. <laughs> right? Like, can you begin to imagine the burden and the pressure that this society feels that every day you just are walking through the streets of a city where people are waiting to point fingers at you and hold you accountable. That's what life was like under the law. Living 
under the law essentially has you living like a dog. Let me explain that. <laughs> I have two dogs. They're adorable and stupid. Those are not their names. Those are their characteristics. <laughs> but no one has a better sense of the law of my house than my dogs. Normally when I come home, I am greeted to excited dogs. Wagging tails, they can barely hold in their excitement. They're so excited. But sometimes I come home and my dogs are nowhere to be found. And I immediately know something's wrong. I don't even have to see what they did, if they got into something, if they had an accident, it doesn't matter. Just by the way that they behave, they start avoiding me. I'll like come home and like I'll find them in the room and they're like turning around like, what, what's up? <laughs> something wrong? Yes. <laughs> because all they can think about are the coming consequences of what they did. And sometimes that's how we act with God. Where I've sinned, I know I've sinned, I know that God knows I've sinned, and now all I can think about is how mad he's gonna be at me. But please let, please hear this. God's intention for your life is not that you would live like a house pet, cowering in fear over the coming consequences. Remember up to this point, Jesus has pronounced judgment, consequences over these cities, Rightful judgment because they rejected him. They deserve what's coming. But listen to Jesus' response to their rejection in verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <sighs> Do you feel that weight shift just in hearing those words? What's the solution to the burden? What's the solution to the consequences of the rejection of Jesus? The solution is Jesus. Come to me, that's the solution. But then we ask the question, well, who, who can come to him? And he says, all who are labored and heavy laden. And that's the weird thing about this, that these cities are filled with people that do labor and they do carry burdens, but they don't see it that way. They love the law. They love holding each other accountable. They love the power that it gives them. They love indulging in that. Those are the prideful people that Jesus says the truth is hidden from. But a child, someone who is humble, quickly recognizes the burdens that they can't carry. My wife and I welcomed home our daughter, uh, Grace, a few months ago. She's, she's great. She's wonderful. And we were given parenting advice uh, early on. Julie and I like to go on walks. We like to stay active, so we'll walk around the neighborhood whenever we can. Uh, and we were given parenting advice. And this person said, when your child is old enough to go on walks with you, don't let them bring anything that you don't want to carry yourself. And you know this, if, you're, if you go anywhere with kids, on the way out the door, they wanna grab everything in their line of sight. I wanna grab my backpack, my sippy cup, my toy, my ball, my teddy bear. And they're really excited to carry all those things for like a minute. And sure enough, as time goes on, more and more of those items end up going from your child's hand to the ground or to your hand. And by minute 15, you're probably carrying everything and your child too. And that's like God where God actually wants to take your burdens, 
Whereas me as a parent is like, yeah, I have to think of ways to convince my child not to bring as much stuff so I don't have to carry it. I don't want to carry your burden. <laughs> but God invites your burden. He wants your burden. He actually demands that you bring your burden to him. And what is his promise when you bring your burden? Rest. Always rest. Jesus invites you to take on his yoke. The yoke is this instrument that's used to bind oxen together. And so you have this instrument that it's this big wooden plank and there's two loops that you put the oxen through. Yes, here it is. So you have this and you bind the oxen together. And so the whole point of doing that is so that the ox can work. You don't go through this convoluted process of lining up the oxen, putting on the yoke, going through that whole process and then you're like, okay, just hang out on the sidelines. The point is to work. But when we're yoked with Jesus, when we're put under that same yoke and we, we're yoked together, you quickly realize that Jesus has already done the work for you. It's like he's already plowed the field and now you just get to walk down it with him. And we might look at this story and think, well, that's, that's fine and good for them, but that's old history, that's Jewish law. We're not under Jewish law today. And I would challenge that. I mean, certainly we're not under 600 Jewish laws, but we live under the law today. Let me prove it to you. I'm just gonna throw out some buzzwords. We're not gonna have the conversation. We're not gonna enter into it. You probably already did that at Christmas, and that's why you're tired. But these are just words, and I, I just wanna see if you get that gut feeling where it's like, ooh, that feels like the law. So I'm just gonna say the words. We'll see how you react. Masks. Vaccines. Protests, politics. You get that? Ugh, feels like the law. We grew up in the church. I grew up in a church that was led by the law. I mean, think about it even for yourself. When you invite someone to come to church, what's the first question that they usually ask? What should I wear? How should I dress? I don't know. Dress? I don't know. Wear something. <laughs> Start there. And that's fine. But that's an expectation that's been put on people by the law that they feel, oh, I should probably dress nicer when I go to church. That's a law. You wanna know a weird law that we had growing up in my church? I grew up in a very traditional church. And so we had this law, this rule, where you're not allowed to trade on Sundays. I don't mean like stocks. I mean like as a child, we had toys that we liked to trade back and forth. We had like pens, Pokemon cards, pogs. Remember pogs? Everyone had pogs, but no one knew how to play with them. And so we like to trade back and forth. But we were told on Sundays, that's a sin. You can't do that. So to circumvent that, we would just borrow each other's toys on Sunday, and then on Monday, the trade would become official. <laughs> then we're not sinning. Then it's okay. Friends, we are living in a world that loves living under the law. In fact, we, we renew our love for the law every year, it seems like, right? Like, what's right around the corner? New Year's resolutions. You have your resolution picked yet? You're gonna run a 5K, lose weight, learn a language, read through the whole Bible in a year, pay off debt? You wanna know how many people, the percentage of people that stick to and complete a New Year's resolution? 4% of people have that magic something to make it through the whole year. You wanna know why most resolutions fail? 
It's because we make them out of a sense of obligation. We feel that pressure from work, from family, from friends, from ourselves to do something. Lose weight, not because you wanna make the choice to be healthy, but because that's just what people do in January, right? Like you buy a treadmill, you get a gym membership, you sell your treadmill in March, and you get rid of your gym membership in June. It's just the circle of life. <laughs> Read through your Bible in a year, not because you wanna know the Lord, but because that's just what a good Christian would do, right? And can we be real? I mean, how many of us make a New Year's resolution to stop a pattern of sin in our lives? I do that, I've done that. Or I'll mark a certain day and say, oh, on January 1 of this year, that's the year I'm gonna stop this pattern of sin in my life. That didn't work. Okay, Easter, that'll be the day that I remember that I've stopped this pattern of sin in my life. That didn't work. Uh, Christmas, uh, next year. And that cycle would continue and continue for me. Because I felt I had to keep cleaning up my life. I am the one that takes care of my sin, my failures, my flaws, my brokenness. Because if I go to Jesus before those things are taken care of, he will be disgusted with them and with me. Like, this is what you choose to bring me? King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of peace, you bring me this? And so I dug down for years, cleaning up my life. And living under the law led to one outcome. I become the God of my life. I will do what I set out to do, and when I determine that I am good enough and clean enough, then I will go to Jesus. Salvation ultimately came by meeting my standards of goodness. And the solution to that is so simple, it seems stupid. And it seems so stupid that the world, by and large, ignores it. But this is the simple truth. Come to Jesus, bring your burdens, he will give you rest. That's it. That's the whole story. That's the formula. There's no other additional requirements, no other stipulations, nothing else that you can do, need to do, should do, could do, would do, nothing. Come to Jesus. Bring your burdens. He gives you rest. It doesn't mean that life will be easy from here on out. It doesn't mean you wake up the next morning, the bills are paid, the house is paid off, the dogs are taken care of, the kids are fed, the mortgage is all done, you got a promotion at your job, there's a new car in your driveway with a red bow just like the commercial. That's not how it works. But it does mean that Jesus goes through your whole life with you. You are yoked to him. You don't need to perform, you don't need to pretend, you don't need to hide anything. Jesus offers rest. And that's why I love Christmas. Jesus is born, so what? This is what? That you have a way out from your sin, from your guilt, from your burden, from your pain, from your trauma, from your anxiety, and your way out is Jesus. But you have to come to him with your burden, with your brokenness, with your hurt, with your shame, with the things that no one even knows about because you're so ashamed of you bring that to Jesus, and he promises rest. But how do we do that? How do we, how do we go to Jesus with our burdens? I have this uh, story that I wanna close with that I think helps contextualize and at least give a tangible example of what this can look like for us. Growing up, uh, I lived out in the country. 
Uh, my family lived out in the country. We were surrounded by farmlands. So farm, 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 farm. Our house is in the middle. We have about four acres of what used to be farmland. Uh, and so because it used to be farmland, but now it's just kind of like a grassy field, it's really uneven. There's a lot of high points and low points. And so when it rains, those low points are like small ponds, puddles, filled with mud and muck. It's disgusting. And my job growing up was to mow the lawn. I mow all four acres. That's my job. And I remember every time I would go out, my dad would caution me, okay, Mark, don't go into the low points because you're going to get stuck. We have a big zero-turn mower. It's heavy. You're going to get stuck. And so I remember one Saturday in particular, it had rained a ton leading up to that week. So even the high points were kind of wet. So I remember my dad pulling me aside, Mark, don't go into the low points. You're going to get stuck. Sure enough. Ten minutes in, I'm stuck. I have to make the four-acre walk of shame back to the house, tap my dad on the shoulder. We get the rope. We get the car. We drive out. We pull it out. We're covered in mud. It's a whole production. It's not fun to do. So I get stuck once. My dad pulls me out. Ten minutes later, I get stuck again. Four-acre walk of shame. Dad, I need your help. We go out. Twenty minutes later, I get stuck again. We go through the whole production, the whole process, and my dad pulls me aside and says, Mark, please don't go into the low points. We will take care of them later. Okay, dad, great, I got it. Dad goes back, I finish mowing all the high points. And you know what? The lawn just doesn't look good when only the high points are mowed. It looks like a kid that cut their own hair. Like it's just uneven and weird. So I thought, you know what? I'm just gonna edge a little closer to the low points. I just gotta get, I just, I have to like feather the edge so it looks at least a little nicer. So I get to that first low point and sure enough, my tire starts spinning out and I thought, you know what? I'm just gonna pull out. I'll go to the garage, no big deal. So I turn to pull out. The mower spins deep into the mud, like really, really stuck. And I, immediately I have the sense of fear. I can't go back to my dad and let him see this. So I get off the mower and I start digging out myself. I'm throwing mud away from the tires. I get back on. I do the reverse and forward trick. Nothing. More stuck. I try to find gravel and rocks to put under the tires to get some traction. Nothing. Everything I do is getting the mower more stuck. And so I walk the four-acre walk of shame back to my house. And I can't bring myself to talk to my dad because I'm so afraid. So I sit on the steps of our back porch and I just cry. And I hear the sliding door behind me open and close. I hear my dad walking toward me and I'm, I can just hear him saying, I told you so, Mark. I told you not to go to the low points. But you know what my dad did? He sat next to me. He put my head on his shoulder and he cried with me. And we just sat and cried. And he picked me up. He wiped the mud out of my face. And we walked the four-acre walk of shame back to the mower. We got unstuck. And I'm telling you, God is desperate to do that with you. To take all of your burden, your hurt, the things you're ashamed of, the things that keep you up at night, and take them from you and go through life with you. That's how you come to Jesus with your burdens. You come covered in the mud and the muck and the mire of your life 
and he promises rest. And so that's what I want to do today. We're going to have a moment of quiet before we enter into worship. And we just come before the Lord. You can ask him, God, what am I hiding? What am I not bringing to you? What am I withholding? And you might know right away, like, I know exactly what God wants. Great. This is that moment where you can bring it to God, bring it to Jesus, and he will give you rest. Let's pray. God, we are desperate for you to carry our burdens. God, we've gone through life long enough on our own, trying to clean up our life, trying to be good enough. But God, you don't invite us when we're good enough. God, you invite us to come as we are, as sinners who are filled to the brim with mud and muck and mire and things that hurt and things that we're ashamed of, things that we've done or have been done to us, burdens that we can't carry. So God, we just come before you and we just ask that you would help us. God, that you would meet us where we are, that you would brush the mud out of our face and that you would join us with you so that we can go through life with Jesus because you love us, because you care for us, because you are for us. God, we can't do it on our own. So God, we just ask that you would move, that you would touch us today, and that you would bring us closer to you. God, we love you, and we praise you for who you are knowing that you are a good, faithful, kind, merciful, loving God who loves us too much to leave us where we're at. God, we love you and we praise you in your name.